of Hebrews has this great metaphor of a race. He loves this athletic metaphor. He loves that language. And I believe that's one of the reasons why many people uh, are so attracted to this idea of believing that Paul is the one who wrote Hebrews. There are so many similarities between the way Paul wrote, painted his letters in the New Testament and the way the author of Hebrews, whether that's Paul or someone else, wrote it. Because this athletic metaphor is there all the time. The Christian life is a race. And this race is a race that starts in the moment you become a Christian. The world is going in different directions, and people are walking, they have different goals, they pursue different things, but the Christian, in the moment that your eyes are open and you realize that Christ is Lord, you have a different joy. And this is what we see in the beginning of chapter 12. Christ himself, for the joy that was set before him, the joy of of, of knowing his Father and pursuing his will, that was his joy, and he pursued that in his whole life, in his whole ministry. And that's what happens to every Christian. In one moment in your life, your eyes are open and you realize that the reason you live is not for yourself, but there is something greater than that. That's, there is Jesus Christ. There is a God. And he owns all things and he's worthy of all glory and all praise. And that's what we live our life for now, for the joy of knowing and flourishing in the knowledge and in a relationship with this God. This athletic metaphor also implies challenges. It's not something easy but the words agony and the words suffering and pain are right there with this metaphor. And that's why we talk about people who are feeble and weak knees and weak arms. Because as we're walking through this race, there will be trials, there will be challenges. And it's not natural, apart from discipline, to do well in this race. It is challenging. It's something that we're doing against the world. Everyone's trying to stop us from this race, but we have to stay strong. It takes discipline. It takes effort. Uh, in Philippians 3.14, Paul says, uh, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what is ahead. It's this idea of actually forgetting the world. It takes effort to do all those things. 1 Corinthians 9.24, a runner runs for the prize, but not a corruptible one, is, uh, is what he says. Think of a metaphor of, of, of a racer. He's, he's running, he's running this race, but he's going after this prize that's just... A prize is something that you get and use for a while. But in a spiritual race, we're going after something that is eternal. And it's worth pursuing this joy that Christ has set before us. But there is something else that the author brings here in chapter 12 of Hebrews. He takes a break from this metaphor after verses 1 and 2. And he gets into this idea of discipline. And that's what we looked at uh, for the past couple of Sundays. The discipline of the Lord, the fact that there's a lot of, there are a lot of trials and there are a lot of temptations and there are a lot of challenges that come with this race. And yet, many of the Hebrews here, the, the Jews who are, and, and the Christians who are reading this letter, they were going through persecution, they're going through many challenges, and they're starting to, to doubt even the love of God for them. What's going on here? Why so many trials? If I'm really doing the right thing, why is all this happening? So the author of Hebrews had, has to exhort them to say, this is not punishment, this is discipline. Uh, this is good for you, and this is actually creating holiness in you. Think of an athlete. If you just wake up one morning and try to run a marathon, you're not going to be able to do it. But through the challenge, through the discipline of working and putting the effort and, and getting your muscles tired after, week after week and working out, that's preparing you for that race to continue to endure. And, we need, and the author wants us to understand that all the challenges of this life are preparing us to glory as we continue walking going through this race. 
But more than that, as we're going through these challenges, there's also one last factor, and that's what we need to have in mind for the verses we're focusing on today, which is verses 12 through 17. And it is that in this race, we don't run on our own. We're not alone in this race. We, of course, have the Lord Jesus Christ with us. But in this life, in this world, we have the church. We have a body of believers with us to assist us as we walk through this life. And at some point in our lives, at some point in your Christian walk, you may have felt that you were weaker than in other times. And you may have felt the need to, to, to depend on someone else to come to and exhort you and, and ask you and, have, and counsel you and help you walk through uh, tough moments in your life. And that's exactly what Paul, what the author of Hebrews here wants us to do. So if you look, I would like you to now, again, read with me verses 12 through 17. And I want you to pay attention to three different sections we find in uh, these verses. We have three admonitions, and the author, he's repeating three different times the same idea. So if you look at verse 12, it says, therefore, therefore here in this context of the witnesses, the fact that we're running this race not on our own, but these runners from the past and right now are running together the same marathon, and we're enduring through our tribes, through discipline in this life. Verse 12, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. So this is something that you have to do and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And my first goal here is to show to you that this person who is lame is not talking about yourself, but the author here is talking about things that you are doing for the help of the others among you. And it's hard for us, especially in America in the 21st century, to read the Bible and not be... It's so easy for us to try to apply things to ourselves right away. It's all about what I can learn, what I can apply to my life. But there are sections in Scripture where God is not necessarily concerned with you first, but he's concerned about how you treat others around you. That's actually a great part of the Christian life, is to learn to love others and to put others' interests about your own. That's the whole idea of humility. And that's what Christ did in his whole race. He was not living for himself, but he was living for the will of God, blessing the ones around him that God had given to him. And that's the mentality the author he was wanting us to have, is that we have a responsibility to help one another. The person who is sitting next to you, the person who is behind you and in front of you in your pew, those are the people that God here in this section is calling you to love and to watch, as we'll see through this passage. So you look for their drooping hands, you look for their weak knees, and you're trying to find ways in which you can help them in their Christian walk. Then in verse 14, it says, You strive for peace with everyone and for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Of course, there's a sense in which all of us, unless we have a certain level of peace and holiness and expressing in our own lives, I believe none of us would see the Lord. However, the passage here, as I would like to, to show you in a minute, is actually saying that through our testimony, through your pursuit or peace and holiness, that's what God wants, that, that's the will of God that you do those things so that people around you would receive the witnesses, the witness of his word and, and receive the testimony of the Lord Jesus through uh, your diligence in doing those things. And lastly, verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. I believe that these are all referring to the same individual, the lame 
the one who's out of joint than the one who will not see the Lord or than the one like Esau, uh, the root of bitterness. Uh, all of these are referring to the same person, and I'll try to show that uh, right now. So let's start looking at the first section, uh, verse 12. The ESV here uh, tr- has these two words, yours, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And I, I'm usually a big fan of the ESV, but in this section, um, the, the actual translation here, if you look at the New King James, is therefore lift the drooping hands and strengthen the weak knees. And this is really important for us to understand because it's not talking about your own hands, but it's talking about you looking at others. And to show you that, I, I don't want you to trust my Greek. <laughs> Maybe Dr. Battle could say that, not me. So I wanted to actually go back to the Old Testament from where uh, the author of Hebrews is getting this quote. So that's the book of Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah chapter 35. Starting in verse 3, this is what the author of Hebrews has in mind in this section. He strengthened the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Now look at the context. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. The context here is this idea of look around, and there are people among you. There are people, runners, who are running with you in in this race, and they are weak. They're facing trials and tribulations, and they're thinking of maybe giving up the faith, or they're not fulfilling their ministry in in honoring God and staying strong. So help them, carry them uh, along with you as you run this race. And... um, that's why I, I thought at first it would be a difficult text to preach on because we have this yours here, but keep that in mind. Therefore, lift the drooping hands and strengthen the weak knees and make straight the path for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint. The same expression lame here is used in the Old Testament as well. And the author of Hebrews, of course, using connections to the Old Testament all the time. So if you would um, go to the book of 1 Kings, and I know I'm doing a lot of flipping around, but that's a good thing. That's a good exercise, talking about discipline and diligence. 1 Kings chapter 18. First King 18. This is the story of Elijah here, and he uses this very same expression of the lame. First Kings 18, starting on verse 21. The context here is that Israel is going through a time of um, deception and sin. They're worshiping not only the true God, but they're trying to do what Jesus uh, speaks against in his Sermon on the Bible. He says, you cannot serve two masters. And this is exactly what the people of Israel are trying to do here. They worship Yahweh. They love their God. But at the same time, they want to worship uh, Baal as well just in case they can get something out of it. And even on the Sabbath, uh, the book of 1 Kings describes how the people of Israel would come to the temple and worship Baal and then worship the true God as well. And then Elijah is the one who comes and says, you have to make a decision. You can't just try to worship true gods, but you have to worship only the one who is really the living God. So verse 21, he says, as he's crying to the people of God, 
And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of God, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So you see here, the context here is dealing with the lame. The lame is someone who is now divided in between, am I really part of Israel or I'm actually going in the direction of worshiping a different God? And uh, these are important things to have in mind because as we go through the passage, these are ideas that are being repeated time after time. The, the lame, the one who is um, in the root of bitterness. Um, Paul, uh, the author here says in verse 14, is strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root or bitterness springs and causes out trouble. And this is the last reference I want to go at this point to show you that this root of bitterness is talking about the same uh, kind of person here. Uh, So that would be in Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29, verse 18. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman who, or a clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the word of, of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall, not be, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Notice here, it's not only that this man is comfortable and not uh, living in a way that honors God, among the people of God, but it says that he will take away the moist and the dry alike. He affects not only himself, it's affecting the lives of the ones around. Verse 20, the Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather be anger, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against this man, and the curses written in this book shall settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Which is a very similar uh, description that we read here in the book of Hebrews for Esau, who sought uh, the blessing with tears, and he couldn't find repentance at that point. So in light of this, that we're looking at a passage dealing with concerning for others around us, that we are to watch for others around us, and that there are people among us, as the author of Hebrews is saying, who maybe are not living the Christian life that they have, and maybe they're not even part of the true people of God, and they are around us. How are we to live our lives in a way that we would be able to help those people? So there are three points I want us to look at uh, here today. The first one is, the, the lift, therefore, lifting the drooping hand and strengthening the knees. Paul says that he could do all things through Christ through, who has strengthened him. And that's the idea, that's the, the comfort we are to bring to one another, that even though there are difficulties and there are challenges in the Christian life, it is possible, always possible for a Christian, it's always possible for you in any circumstance in your life 
to face those difficulties and face those challenges for the glory of God, honoring his word, following his will. And that's the encouragement we are to bring to one another as we bring to them the word of God. And that's the very context here of chapter 12. Uh, the comfort that we have that every challenge is, is not a punishment, but it's a comfort coming from God that we would grow in our faith and that we would grow in our understanding of who God is and what he wants for our lives as we go through those challenges, creating holiness, uh, building our character through those challenges. And the author says, not only strengthen those hands, but it's interesting the expression, he says, make straight your paths. And this yours here, the second yours, uh, the making straight your paths, is actually here. It's saying it is your job to make straight the path in front of you so that people around you can walk straight with you and you can go in the same direction. And, the Bible, and of course, these are all metaphors. Uh, God is not actually concerned with how strong your knees are physically or your hands or necessarily if the path you're walking every day, if the cement is actually uh, leveled. But these are spiritual realities related to how much we are uh, putting effort into doing the will of God in our lives. Are we living for ourselves or are we living for the glory of God? And this idea of having a path straight is all throughout Scripture. Um, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 5, uh, 32 and 33, uh, if you would turn your Bible there as well, uh, makes that very clear. Deuteronomy 5, You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that you you may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land you shall possess. It's not only necessary that we live a life that we're energetic about doing what we're doing, pursuing what we're pursuing with all our uh, strength. Uh, as, as Paul told Timothy, God has given the spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. And that's the spirit we have. But this spirit has to be directed, of course, in, in the direction that God gave us. And he gave us this direction through his word. It's here that we learn how to walk a straight path, how to go the narrow through the narrow gate and through the narrow path is through the word of God. And that's why we need knowledge and understanding of God's word, not only for ourselves, but for the blessing of the ones around us as well. And that's what the author of Hebrews here is saying. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, 14 has a very similar idea when uh, Moses writes, if you do not turn aside from any of if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods to serve them but if you do not obey the, the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you and then there is a huge list of things that will happen uh, from going away from that direction that's the, the admonition of the Lord to us that we would take heed of his word and know the path where to go. So lifting, helping the ones around us in um, loving Christ and guiding them in the straight path so that what is lame, the person who is not sure about the direction they are to go, they would have that help and know the direction they are to go so that the lame may not be put out of joint, but rather 
be healed. That's the first admonition we have here in this passage. Then verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Peace and holiness. The idea of peace is one of the most important concepts to, to the Jews. Uh, the idea of even shalom is something that you still hear today as, as a greeting among the Jews. Shalom, peace. Uh, for peace for the Jew is more than the lack, the absence of war and conflict, but it's actually a, a, a fulfillment. It's the idea of having everything that you need in order to live a fulfilled life. It's a very rich, rich meaning, uh, word in, in meaning, and, and this is what the author of Hebrew wants for believers, that they would strive for peace, for unity, for love for one another. And that's the very idea we see from Jesus when he testifies to his disciples saying, it's, it's by the love that you have for one another that the world will know who you are. Um, one, of the, one, one phrase that I heard, I forget who told me, but I, I really appreciated that, was that someone told me, Believe, unbelievers don't read the Bible, they read you. And that's a really interesting concept. Uh, we see uh, some of that in Scripture that our character is great part of what God wants from us so that we would endure, even the idea of the list of, of, of the ones who endured in faith. It's not only their great deeds, but when they're going through suffering and enduring through all that for the glory of God, that witnesses, that witness of, of, of doing those things the right way is what God wants for us, that we strive for peace with everyone. They would be thankful to God in all things, even through trials. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord is through the testimony in our living uh, and, and proclaiming of God's, of God's good news that um, others will be able to find God and, and that they will be saved it's through our testimony. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may, may, may become defiled. The author here brings now a contrast to what he wants the church to do. If what he wants from us is peace and holiness, this root of bitterness here is now the one he, which causes trouble, and by it may become defiled. These are the two opposites, uh, bringing trouble, the opposite of peace, defiling uh, others around. Uh, there's no holiness, nor no purity, but defilement. And as the author brings those things to us, um, we need to ask ourselves, have, are we watching? The very word uh, that we see here, see to it, is the word that we also have for the word, L, uh, uh, for the, for the word uh, bishop. Uh, that we call our elders, or, or, um, or sometimes the word to see, episkopos, um, and overseer. And that's the idea here that the author is using, not only for that people in that role, for the elders, but for all in the church to strive for peace and to oversee, watch the church. See if you have anyone in your church who needs help and who is in going through um, a period of disbelief and help those around you so that they would not become a root of bitterness and, and cause trouble to the whole church. We need to keep watch and do that for the sake of the church and for the sake of our brothers. This idea of, of being a peacemaker, 
In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Um, he says, if there is something that anyone has against you, and you have an offering, even when you're worshiping God in the temple, in the temple, leave what you have, leave your gift in the altar, and run after them. That's a, a similar idea to, to the word here, uh, strive for peace, this idea of striving. This word brings this picture of one who is running and trying to catch someone else, either catching maybe a prey or, or maybe a different runner. And this idea of trying to find peace in that way, it's not something passive where as long as people, I'm here, I'll, I won't try to find a problem with anyone, but it's if you see problem, go and solve that problem. If, there is a, if a brother has something against you, even if you're not guilty of it, go and try to reconcile before you come worship and bring an offering. And, and Jesus uh, had already brought these realities to us and all the authorities bringing that up again. Uh, for the sake of your brethren, Pursue peace as long as it is possible with you. As long as it is possible. In Romans 12, Paul says, as long as possible, as long as it is in you, pursue peace with all men. And of course, it's not always perfectly possible. Some people just want to keep the, the, the edge of their spear on you. And if you've been in church for a while, you know that believers can be um, trapped in those situations for a while. Uh, but, of course, God calls to repentance, and as long as it's possible with you, pursue reconciliation with your brethren. So watch for the root of bitterness spring up. And the example now we have here in verse 16 and 17 is that this root of bitterness is illustrated by the example of Esau. It says, that no, uh, see to it that no one is sexually immoral, or unholy, like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. These are very hard things to, to, to consider. A man, a man like Esau, who was born in the covenant and in the covenant of family and he was circumcised he was in this environment of of knowing god and and understanding all the realities of of the covenant of god with his people and yet the bible says that he rejected god for a single meal the very word here uh, unholy is brings this idea of someone who doesn't really care. He's not really part of what's going on. He's there. He's there in the middle with everyone else, but he's not really concerned. That's not really where his heart is. And that's why I believe that the expression here is very appropriate. And he says, uh, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Uh, This is not talking about someone who fails in obtaining the grace and losing his or her salvation. That's not what the text is about. The the grace here is the context of someone who is in Israel. Remember the, the lame the one who already belongs to Israel, or, um, or also the one who is lame, who is in Israel, but he's not concerned with the things of God. It's someone who grew up in the church, and maybe you're baptized, and, and you go through all the motions, and you partake of the Lord's Supper, but your heart, the grace has not penetrated to your heart. You have received grace in the sense of having the opportunity to hear the gospel time after time after time, but has that actually changed the way you lived? live? Has that actually uh, changed the way you have your priorities in life? Or your concepts of success and, and, and your ideas in life, your goals are still the same of the world? 
Are you running the race in a different direction, pursuing the joy that Christ offers? Or are you still running in the same direction of the world, pursuing the treasures of this life? And that's what we see in the examples of Esau, uh, someone who had everything in front of him, and yet for a soup. He loved the soup more than he loved the privilege of being the firstborn receiving the blessing of God. Uh, we have other examples of that. Think of Judas. Judas is with Jesus, had the opportunity. He, had, he received the grace of being there and watching the, the Savior, our Lord, walking on earth, making the miracles and, and preaching and everything that he did his whole life. And yet, he sold everything for 30 silvers of coin. Think of the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler grew up, he knew all the scriptures. He did everything one could have done as far as following the religious steps of Judaism and being part of the people of God. And yet when Jesus comes to him and says, okay, so just sell everything you have and come and follow me, he couldn't do it because he loved his money. He loved his possessions more than he loved the idea of pursuing a life following Christ. So that's the warning we have here. The warning, of course, we can take that to ourselves. Am I in the place where I, I am here, I'm following the motions, but I have never actually given my life to Christ? But more than that, can we see? Can, can we watch for others around and see if we can find someone who may be going in that direction? That it is our job to come to them and help them and, and, and lift their drooping hands and strengthen their weak knees. And, of course, the context here is because I'm not saying that everyone is an Esau. We have people in the church who maybe are losing uh, they're getting colder, and they're not as strong in their energy to go and preach the gospel and evangelize and do all these things. It's not that they're not Christians. We can see. We can make that distinction between the wheat and the tares, as Jesus describes in Matthew 23 in his parable. And that's when it's our job to see. If this person is not energetic, if this person is not living a life, how can I encourage this person to make sure that they are going back as far as, as po- everything I can do, I'll strive for peace, for holiness, for making the path straight, for holding them up, doing that with encouragement through love, the word of God, so that these per- people can um, come back to the right direction and not completely go away from the faith as, fo- as much as possible for us to do that. And the warning here is very heavy, says that Esau sold his birthright for a single mule, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, uh, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. We know that God will always save the one who comes to him in faith. Uh, Psalm 51 is very clear. A broken and contrite heart I would not despise. If you repent from your sins, if you realize that in your life you have not given all you have to Jesus and you want to be with him, he will receive you. He will never deny anyone who comes with a sincere heart of repentance and comes to him asking for help and for forgiveness. He will never deny that. He loves to save sinners. That's his greatest joy. The joy of God is to save sinners. What we see here in this passage is not someone who is really repentant and God is saying, you had your chance. You're, it's too late now. It's never too late, not in this life. What we see here is that though he sought the, prom, the, the blessing with tears, he didn't find repentance in his heart. There's no true repentance. What we see here is regret. 
This man sells the birth, his birthright for a single meal, and now he's looking back and seeing all the blessings and how God has prospered his brother Jacob through that blessing, and he's saying, oh, that was really a bad move. And now he regrets and he's crying in tears, but he is not repentant. The same thing we find with Judas. Judas regretted to the point of buying a field and hanging himself, and you, you, can, you can feel that he's in remorse. However, was there true repentance there? There's no true repentance. He regretted the consequences of what he had done. And as you think of the rich young ruler, what about that man in the day that he realized what he did, giving up Christ for money, for something that is temporary, is temporal? Um, the, the Bible describes hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The weeping there is, I, I believe, part of what we see here. I believe that any, any person who lived their whole lives coming to church and is part of a, some sort of, and, and it was religious in many ways, and you live your whole life with the opportunity to repent, receiving, hearing the gospel time after time every Sunday from your neighbors, from your family, and that person continues in pursuing the riches of this world and not giving their life to Christ, there will be regret. And, of course, uh, in the context of Hebrews 12, where we talk about discipline, that God doesn't punish his children. Every single thing that happens in your life today, as, as, and it is bad, it's happening so that God is shaping your character, is not punishment. But in hell, that's very different. In hell, there is no discipline. There's no redeeming aspect to the punishment in hell. But in hell, uh, those who don't find themselves in Jesus Christ will receive the wrath of God that they deserve. And, and that's what happens to those who, um, like Esau, never repented. They would regret being there. If they could go, go back, as the parable of the rich and, and, and Lazarus, uh, he wished he could go back there because he's suffering so much and he doesn't like that. If I could go back and change something so that I could be out of here. But the repentance is never a true concern and a love for the true God and for Jesus Christ. And, and that's what we see here with Esau, this regret as he sees the consequences of what happened to him. Isaiah chapter 55, um, Isaiah admonishes us and he says to the very people of Israel, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. And, and that's the admonition I believe the author of Hebrews has to us in this section, is first, check yourself. I need to check my heart. You have to check your heart. Are we living lives truly uh, after this joy that Christ has set before us? Uh, pursuing his will, his kingdom, his glory, uh, being part of his people and having a relationship with him. Is that more precious to us than anything else in this life? Whether that's money, whether there's our career, our own family, our own health. Are those things more precious to us than Christ? We need to check that. But second, after we move that first step, can we watch over those who are around us? Is there anyone who maybe is going that direction and then they're putting their eyes in the things of this world? Can we help them? Can we help, help with their hands? Can we help with their knees? Can we strive for peace and holiness and show to them what they need to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ? And those are among us uh, in our churches, in our families, and people who we love, and we need to um, help them that way. But more than all, I believe that this is pointing us back uh, in this illustration of the race to the very beginning of chapter 12 that we read today, verses 1 and 2. 
since we are surrounded by, this, by, so, cloud, by so, so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ is the one who sets the example, and it's through faith in him. That's the whole point of chapters 11 and 12. Uh, we, yes, there are therefores, there are things that we do after what we see and receive from Christ. But the beginning of all things, the core of everything that we do is looking to Christ in faith and seeing that he was the one who perfectly accomplished what we are called to do in this text. He's the one who came to earth and lived a life that we could never live. He had perfect peace. He had perfect holiness. He made the perfect path so that we could walk on. He gave us, the, in his ministry, he gave us all the guidance. He, he taught the word. He opened the word to his people. And he is the one who came to rescue us when we were going in a direction that would take us astray from God. And he completely rescued us. Now it's our job to follow his steps um, pursuing the same for others as long, of course, trusting in him and in the power of his Holy Spirit. So may God help us to um, be a blessing to the ones around us as we watch them and pursue peace and holiness for our sake, for their sake, and, of course, first of all, for the honor and glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We... Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who came to save sinners who were going astray from all that we know we were designed and created to do. We thank you for your spirit uh, applying these things to our hearts. And we pray that as we look to Christ, as we are reminded of the joy that is set for us, that is prepared for us in heaven, not only for us as individuals, but for your whole church, from Abel through Abraham and Moses and David, uh, all the reformers and all the believers that we know in this life and that will still come in the future. Lord, all of us are waiting, running this race together, waiting for the glorious day of the resurrection where all of us will be renewed in our bodies and our spirit. All things will be made right and will forever live uh, with the company of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for these great promises that we find in your word, and we pray that these promises will be our encouragement to live holy lives, to pursue peace with all men, and we pray that this would also encourage us to uh, pursue those things for the lives of the ones around us. We know that we can't do it on our own, but we know that in Christ all things are possible, and we pray that we'll be able to um, practice all these things in his name, and in his name we also pray all these things. Amen.